Welcome to the Millionaire Next Door podcast with Robert Curtis, CFP, accredited investment fiduciary from Signature Estate and Investment Advisors. In this podcast, we help successful wealth accumulators like you looking to transition to a work optional lifestyle by helping you build strategies for growing and maintaining your wealth. Robert draws from years of experience and fiduciary responsibility and interviews guest experts to help you build reliable strategies to grow and maintain your wealth. Now, on to the show. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Millionaire Next Door podcast. I'm your host, Robert Curtis. Thank you so much for listening. Market volatility political uncertainty, competitive forces, and various external dependencies, they're all facts of life for a professional on a team such as mine. It would be great if the world cooperated with our plans on a consistent basis, but that's not the way it always is. And that's why clients engage us and our team and our process. So I wanted to go a little further into that, into the process and some of the things we're seeing and ways we're assisting clients And to do that, I've brought along Sam Miller. He's a repeat guest. He's the director of research at our firm, Signature Estate and Investment Advisors, SEIA. We've had him on. He shed a lot of light on some of the processes that we're deploying for clients that they may not fully be aware of, but I wanted you to get a sense uh, sort of under the hood, some of these things that we're we're seeing. And today we're going to delve into the world of alternative investments So let me welcome Sam, and uh, Sam, I'll let you just kind of kick it off and talk about what alternative investments are, how we're integrating that with clients, and we'll we'll go from there. Absolutely. Great to be back, Rob. Um, Hope all is well on your end. So um, we can kind of start at the top, and, you know, the the word alternative investments, it means different things to different people, but... You know what do what do we do in 2023 when we have uh, an important question and we want a really scientific answer? Well, oftentimes we go to Twitter, and uh, there was someone who I follow who actually posed a question to their their followers on on their timeline. When you hear the term alternative investment, what's the first thing you think of? And of course, you're getting this the range of responses from things like complexity. Fees, misunderstood, opaque, illiquid, unnecessary, diversification, scam. These are, these are, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a polarizing topic. And the question is why, why is that? So I think uh, the alternative investment industry is associated with some of the brightest minds in the world. Some of the, the, the best investment managers out there, but also, uh, there have been some pretty high-profile blow-ups and scandals. You know, there was a, a show, I believe it's on Showtime, called Billions, and it's loosely or not so loosely based on a, a company called SAC Capital, which is it was one of the most successful hedge funds in the world. They averaged thirty percent returns every year, net of fees for over two decades. That's unheard of. But they also pled guilty to insider trading about a little over a decade ago. So they were maybe bending, breaking some rules in the process. They ended up paying billions of dollars in fines, and they don't exist anymore. But they're the subject of these sorts of high-profile shows on HBO, Showtime, you name it. And there's all sorts of stories like that. 
Um, so that's why you get such polarizing uh, responses when you pose questions like that on Twitter. But ultimately, at the outset, Rob, you talked about helping out our clients and your clients from a planning perspective. So at the end of the day, yes, it's a polarizing topic, but let's cut cut through all of that. We believe that as investors, we're trying to get help our clients get from point A to point B. If we can build a sounder portfolio that maybe includes some of these alternative strategies, then they're going to be better off. And as a fiduciary, we have an obligation to at least explore that and educate our clients on the pros and the cons and the why of, of this space. And in certain cases, maybe it doesn't make sense, but in many cases it does make sense for our clients and it res results in a sounder portfolio and a better likelihood of the client getting from point A to point B with their financial plan. Wow, that's I. I don't spend time on Twitter, so I guess I was, and I didn't expect it to open and take that direction. But I, so it's interesting how the quote the masses are viewing it, or folks that comment on Twitter. I do though. I've seen the mate. You know, think of Bernie Madoff, right? And he got these in uh, incredible returns, kind of like the one you just referenced, that were didn't reconcile with what other people were doing, and and look how that turned out, or. Or these references I'll get occasionally from clients who I have some stuff in hedge funds and I'm like, what is that? What does that mean? What are they, are they really hedging? What are they doing? Are they charging 2%, 20% on top? So I've had a lot of um, trepidation about that space, but you guys are a formal research department with full fiduciary obligations. So you look into this and what what we're seeing, and I'll, I'll turn it back to you, is that once you ferret through that, and we'll we'll mostly come up with the ones that that don't deserve a, a place in clients' portfolios. But this had been the purview of really high net worth institutional investors, et cetera, and we're seeing it filter down more to the retail clients. And some of these offer some good diversification and sort of a safer bridge as we as we move through a an interesting period in time with a uh, massive expansion of the federal, the, the monetary supply and the money supply and rises in interest rates and a couple of several bank failures, et cetera. So let me turn it back to you, but yeah, I hadn't expected it to go in that direction, but that that's what's out there. People are hearing. So talk a little bit more about how we're viewing it, the work you're doing, what, what, are, what are some of the benefits, how it's being used at all that. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I I like to keep you on your toes, Rob. So I'll try to throw <laughs> more curveballs. Let me let me pose a question to you. How many how many mutual funds are out there in in the universe today? Any any? Uh, yeah, a lot. I don't know. Probably ten thousand. But that's... you're you're pretty close. It's a little okay. under ten thousand. It's been about around a little north, give or take, eight thousand for the past two decades. So if if there's 8000 mutual funds out there the next question is how many private funds do you think are out there more than 8000 or less That is a good question um I would think less So you would think less cuz you probably don't come across them every day but the 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 fact is there's over 40000 private funds out there today over 18000 private equity funds over 9000 hedge funds and the, the fact of the matter is it, there's there's a lack of regula regulation around these. So 
when you don't have to have to get things approved by the SEC or follow all the rules that a mutual fund would do. A lot of people opt for going the easy route. So the point is there's a lot of vehicles out there. And you're right to your previous comment. This was historically lived in the space of the institutional world, endowments, foundations. More and more, uh, these vehicles are becoming available to people in the the ultra high net worth space and the high net worth space and even in the the mass affluent space people with lower account smaller account sizes can get access to these vehicles so my point in telling you there's five times as many private vehicles out there is you've got to really have a robust process to get it down from 42,000 vehicles to something more manageable so for us we have a short list of call it 15 to 20 that we feel good about it. So how do you get from 42,000 plus down to 15 that you feel good about that you might be, be comfortable working with your clients and using in a portfolio? So there's a process that we use and it's a, a top-down process. So we start at the highest level, which is what's our, our macroeconomic outlook? And that's developed by our investment committee. So how do we view the world? What sorts of strategies may or may not work? In this sort of market environment we're in right now, where you know we we may may or may not be heading for a recession, but we definitely think we're we're late cycle either way. We've got interest rates where they are. We've got inflation concerns. We've got geopolitical concerns. We've got a debt ceiling. So that's that's what needs to shape this narrative. Um, that's the top down macroeconomic outlook. So everything needs to fall in line with that. Next idea, next part of the process is the investment thesis. So what sorts of ideas in the alternative landscape would align with that macroeconomic assessment and which which sorts of vehicles would fall in line with specific client portfolio needs? So that's the next layer is the investment thesis. The third level is a, a pre-screen, which is basically our way of getting that list of 42,000 vehicles down to something much more manageable by just eliminating the worst of the worst. So we have specific guardrails that we put in place. We're, we're not going to work with any uh, asset manager or, or private vehicle that doesn't have at least a five-year operating history. Mo and many of them don't. We're not going to work with the smallest firms. We have a specific a AUM or asset threshold. You got to be proven. You got to be, have been doing this for, for some amount of time. You got to have a certain amount of, of, of assets in this sort of strategy that we're looking at. And then it's also got to work with us from a uh, an operational perspective. You got to have your assets custodied at Schwab and Fidelity. And that was the issue with, with Bernie Madoff that you mentioned earlier. One of the issues is he was, he was handling all the custody himself, which meant he could fudge the numbers. And when we have a third party relationship with a Schwab or Fidelity, we never physically take custody of client assets. They still own their assets. They're held at a, a third-party provider like Schwab or Fidelity. So those, like those simple pre-screens, help us get that list down from forty-two thousand to something much more manageable. So then we have our team on our side that that works with uh, you know other other third-party providers from a research perspective to go into and do the the kicking of the tires and the, the due diligence. And we really look at four key tenets of the due diligence process once we get down to that shortlist. We look at the strategy and the investment process. So that includes, you know, how do they come up with ideas? What's their track record? What's the scalability of their opportunity set? What's their competitive advantage relative to, to other people that are running similar strategies? The second piece is risk management. 
So do they have a risk committee? Do they have specific limits around how much, how much risk they can take, how much leverage they can put on the portfolio? The third piece is the, the management and the analysis of the team. Uh, what's their background? Do they have sufficient experience? Is there alignment of interest in terms of compensation and things like that? And then the last piece is the operational due diligence. So looking at their policies and procedures, doing background checks, all of those things go into the operational piece. So after all that is said and done, we finally get comfortable with this, this vehicle and we'll bring it to the table um, and potentially start using it in client accounts. And this could take as, I mean, the, the, the quickest we've ever gotten comfortable is maybe six months. In other cases, it's taken years, but a lot of work goes into making sure these are one, right for, for our advisors to use with their, their clients. And then ultimately, um, you know, making sure a, com a client is comfortable and understands the pros and cons and benefits and drawbacks of, of such a solution. So hopefully that gives a sense of like, at a high level, what goes into the process for bringing these to the table? Yeah, I think it it does. And, and I can elaborate a little bit. You know, process is just so, so important. And that's what I wanted to highlight. You know, you might be spending six months to two years, a whole team of trained investment analysts really looking through, you know, 40,000 roughly gets reduced down to 15. I mean, that's, that's pretty elite. We're doing a lot of diligence. And there a lot of reasons these are used by high net worth or institutions, as, as you'll probably allude to, they have sophisticated research teams, or they're supposed to be sophisticated on that level to where they can do this. Most folks don't have the diligence. So uh, unfortunately, a lot of folks just read something in, in a publication or on Twitter that doesn't have the background. It's coming, I hate to knock them, but from a journalist who doesn't understand, doesn't have your kind of training, doesn't do the discipline and the research to really understand what what we're dealing with it so so you've really come up with very differentiated processes that are sound i i think a lot about sports so there's this you know in march the march madness and the college basketball tournament and there's 64 teams and you get down to something called the sweet 16 and then the elite eight these are really top top teams in the country and there's there's probably thousands of college basketball teams but these are the best of the best. And this is what we offer. And we do that diligence and we do that work or you do that work, I should say, for clients. And we're very engaged and utilize that process and, and view you as very much a part of our team. But there's reasons why someone might want to put these into a portfolio in addition to mutual funds or ETFs or things that are publicly traded. So I think that helps a lot. It's a very, and this even gave me a different perspective, a really elite 15 out of tens of thousands of funds out there that, that probably merits some consideration or discussion. So uh, thanks for that. And I'll let you continue on a little bit. Sure. So like we, we talk about kind of the, the process of getting to that short list, but Hopefully, I've elaborated on how much effort and energy goes into it. So some people might be asking, well, is it even worth it? Do you need to go down this rabbit hole and spend hours and hours of your time? And our our belief is that, yeah, I mean, if we can improve the likelihood of a client's achieving their goals by building a sounder portfolio, then we have the obligation of at least ex exploring that. And I think you were just allu alluding to the why. To me, it's about expanding your opportunity set. Yes, in many cases, you can get 
from point A to point B in terms of your financial plan by using a a portfolio of of ETFs or mutual funds or individual stocks and bonds, and and you don't need to go into the realm of alternatives. In other cases, it does make sense. I think in if you think about your opportunity set being U.S. stocks or even global stocks, most companies in the U.S. are not traded publicly. They're not the household names that we've come to know, and Microsofts and the McDonald's and Coke and Pepsi, the the, the tickers that everyone knows. Most companies in the United States are actually private businesses that never have to go to you know, list their shares on a public exchange. So to to tap into that realm, you've got to go into this world of, of private investments. And my belief is that by expanding your opportunity set to include lots of these great businesses that just have never had have never needed to go and be and go public, you can again expand your opportunity set and have a better chance of success in your portfolio. So that's one one why. Uh, another why is diversification. So for us, there's there's many people who are okay with with riding the highs and the lows of the stock market, and they can they can sleep just fine at night when the when the market is down 20, 30 plus percent. That's I would say that's that's not most people. That's some people. Most people get a little bit nervous. They maybe have issues from a behavior perspective. Maybe they want to sell at the wrong time and buy it, buy at the highs and sell at the lows. And it's just this this thing that's related to our human nature. If you can add diversification to your portfolio, when stocks are going up, there's maybe another piece in your portfolio that's acting differently and vice versa. That helps to smooth out the ride. And that's the diversification benefit of many alternative strategies is that they're you don't want everything in your portfolio doing the same thing at the exact same time. And over the course of time, these these asset classes are going to offset each other and provide value from a diversification perspective. Um, and then there's there's other other whys with with uh, with alternatives. Another piece might be for many people that are in retirement or getting close to retirement or just have some sort of an income need. I think again by expanding your opportunity set, there are certain asset classes within the private markets that can generate a higher degree of income than you could get from a from a treasury bond or even a corporate bond. Even though treasury bonds bonds are around five percent these days, so it's it's not a bad thing. But you can even you can do better than that in the private world. So again, back to the original thought: it's expanding your opportunity set gives you a better chance of success over the long term. Yeah, no, that that's great. I mean, and it's also when you think of this elite fifteen, we're we're really concerned with having sort of excellent players in your space if they're going to fit in a portfolio. I mean, even if you look at the S and P five hundred, I don't know that I want to own all five hundred of those stocks. Really, there's probably you know twenty five or thirty of those businesses I really want to own. But, but that you can look at things. I think of like In-N-Out Burgers, the classic. You cannot really invest in that. But anyone, certainly in the Western part of the U.S., knows that's incredibly profitable. Or Trader Joe's, you can't really go into. But th those are – some of these offer the, the ability to get into there or into legal finances, maybe where they're financing a law firm, et cetera, or royalties, things like that that normally you wouldn't get at. So – those are streams. And, and what kinds of incomes are you seeing and what kinds of volatility relative to, say, 
public stock or bond markets. Is there a way to give some thoughts on that? Sure. So there is still the the traditional risk and return spectrum. So in order to get more return or more income, you typically have to take more risk. But but we've seen certain private asset classes that are yielding in the double digits. So you know, 10% plus. And that again, that depends on the the types of risk that are being taken. But you're not going to see that very often in the traditional public space. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to clip that kind of a yield um, in this environment, uh, when we may be looking at the onset of a recession or at a cycle top, like you said, that's that's pretty compelling. Talk a little bit about, I guess, typically in a portfolio, I think we are looking at maybe 10 to 20% allocations, endowments, universities, high net worth, they might be looking at different percentages. Give, give us a little context. What percentage of a portfolio is typically viewed as sort of a, you know, the, the right amount, kind of like a diet, right? You want to have a certain amount. Uh, just because it's good for you, it doesn't mean always that more is better, uh, but there's probably a certain amount that's probably good for your overall portfolio or diet. Just, just some thoughts on that would be sure, helpful. And, and I think the benefit of working with an advisor is really dialing in that number to something that works for the client. And maybe it's maybe it's zero, maybe it's five, maybe it's 10, 15, 20. Uh, that's the beauty of working with a professional like you is you're going to understand what their time horizon is, what their liquidity needs are, what's important to them, what 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 type of returns do they need to see out of the portfolio to achieve their goals, what sort of risk are they comfortable with? And then you can dial it in from there. But I think two of the primary levers when it comes to alternatives are uh, the the time horizon and the liquidity requirements. So if you think about those endowments that you mentioned, Yale, Harvard, whomever, they think in in generational terms, they're they're willing to to think over the course of hundreds of years, literally, in terms of their investments. So they can afford to have a really long time horizon and be very patient with their investments. So what we see in the in the in the private client space is some people are able to think about generational wealth, but other people have to think about funding their retirement next year or paying off a loan or something like that. So again, that goes back to the advisor working with the client to understand their liquidity needs, what's important to them. So, and that is ultimately going to drive what might end up in the portfolio and the percent of the overall portfolio. But, you know, I don't like to speak in, in, in general terms, but you know, 10, 10% ish is, is a good number to think about in terms of carving out an alternative sleeve for a, for a portfolio less than that. It's probably more hassle than it's worth. If you get, closer to 20%, you maybe have some issues from a liquidity and from a, a a fee perspective, but again, it's going to be highly dependent on the individual client situation. Yeah, for, for sure. And I love that, that you reference that because that that's what I do is I work with, work with these folks. Uh, you know, basically I let them know they're available and that they might be attractive to them and they should consider them. And, and, and then I'll look at percentages, what's normal 
also what are their liquidity needs. And, and there are a lot of folks who are thinking intergenerational wealth or, or maybe they're not thinking about it, but they should be thinking about it because we're going to meet all their liquidity needs, but we're really looking to the second and third generation. You know, longevity is just a huge issue too that I, I've been doing a lot of reading on and looking into and, um, you know, there are some folks might be living a, a lot longer. Centenarians, 110, 120, they're, they're, that sounds insane, but there's a lot of folks that are talking about that if we, if we can structure it. So maybe they have to have portfolios that, that live through that. And we, so we, we have a very custom discussion and, and what's right and what's appropriate. And just a couple of them to give you a little idea on, and you would know this well, there's one where the minimum initial investment is $10 million, but we can gain access because as a firm, we're, we're well over that number, but we've done all that research and we can give people much smaller allocations, maybe in the $1,000, $10,000 range. There's another one we've been working with, and I'm told it, it pulls together different alternative strategies with a lot of diligence but you'd literally need about $115 million on your own, uh, which is out of most most folks' reach that I know uh, to, to get into something like that. And you can do it very similarly, you know, in $1,000, $10,000 increments, that kind of thing. So um, it kind of lets people have exposure to these things that were previously kind of off limits to them, unfortunately, only the purview of the really high net worth and rich, but yet you have all the diligence through our research and through Sam and his team and my team of really looking into that. And that gives a huge window into the fact that there's really like 15 of these out of maybe 40,000. And so such give you a lot of confidence. How, how many do you throw out and just say, this does not meet this criteria or, or we're not comfortable with this, or it's pretty good, but it's not really meritorious enough to be on the elite list of 15 i i assume that's a common process or how how does that work yeah i mean the that investment pre-screen that i mentioned really eliminates the vast majority of the universe you got to have that five-year operating history a certain level of, of aum we typically look at only look at firms that have north of a billion dollars that gives us a sense of confidence that they've had some success and and know what they're doing. And of course, it, it's not a perfect screen, but it helps to narrow our focus so that we don't have to go out and kick the tires on on hundreds. We're kicking the tires on dozens instead of hundreds and thousands. So it, it makes it manageable for us. Well, I mean, this is great. That That just highlights the process. You know, we're a sounding board for clients. We bring this, we're using it a lot more, especially in this environment than we had been. Um, there's a lot of research and diligence behind that. That's what I wanted to emphasize here. Uh, we can have lots of discussions to see if it's right for you, but, but there's a lot, there's a lot of cash piling up on the sidelines. There's a lot of people in treasuries right now. There's a lot of people, uh, concerned about the stock market. So these offer some alternatives and it's, it's just a sounding board to have a discussion, but there's so much research behind it and uh, we're doing that. So I wanted to highlight that. And then we really go out and build custom portfolios for each client, which is, it's just uh, a big part of differentiation versus a lot of our competitors who have sort of a, 
cookie cutter pie chart asset allocation strategy of so much in in, in each little bucket. But uh, other times you may not want to be in those buckets. So so we can go off grid like that. We don't don't have to just make it a standard one size fits all portfolio. It's a very customized thing. And that's another part of our process, getting to know clients, their liquidity needs, what's working, what's going to be right for their risk temperament, you know, what's sort of best in class, um, you know, on even a global scale, what is the best at what they do in a particular space and populating with that. So Sam, it's awesome having you back to kind of give deeper, deeper dives into the process. And I hope that helps folks. Um, anything else, any other kind of nice salient points or things you think folks should be aware of or anything we didn't cover that that should be shared? Well, I, th I think with with your earlier comment about these vehicles becoming more and more available to to uh, individual investors more so than they have been historically, what we are particularly careful about on that is, you know, a, a, a strategy that may have been offered to an institution and now it's being available to uh, an investment advisory firm or an, an end client. How has it been watered down in the process? Typically, if the terms change, maybe the strategy can't have as long of a time horizon, the the fees change, like something has typically changed over the course of time. And it's not the case in every situation, but but that's what we ultimately look for is it's not always a slam dunk um, just because a strategy becomes available to a different segment of the population. So that's part of our process is looking at that. But I just wanted to to circle on that because you had mentioned that a few times is yes, in many cases, it's, yeah, uh, it's, it's a win-win for, for the clients and for the institution who's, who's running the money. Um, but in many cases, what we're seeing is the strategies have been, changed or altered in some way that's maybe not advantageous to the end client. So that's what we're particularly careful about. Yeah, that's a really good point. So if you do hear of something like this, anybody who's listening, you're welcome to engage us, ask us about it. We'll give you our candid thoughts. We've probably heard of it. We can look into it. Did something get watered down in the process of just making it available? Is it too good to be true? I, I know the things you're looking at, we're we're getting a, a big a big differentiator in this space is just getting fees really reasonable. And some of these large endowments can can really negotiate on fees, and that's where they get their big advantage. And and we have some opportunities to do that as well. But that's a huge point. So please bring these thoughts to us. We're we're doing the diligence. That's what we are as a sounding board. We've seen a lot of these things and we can look into them so we can give you that peace of mind, um, let you know if it, if it seems sound and put extra um, eyes and ears and really view and do the diligence on it. So that's a, that's a terrific point. So awesome, Sam. Um, really love having you on the podcast and giving a deeper dive, you know, into our, we just want to familiarize people with some of the people in our practice, our process, um, how we go about this. This this hopefully gives people a, a better sense of, of the real diligence going on before discussions happen and recommendations happen. And, and we'd be pleased to engage anyone in, in a discussion. So thanks, Sam. And uh, I'll leave it there unless you uh, – otherwise, we'll sign out. But if thanks for being on and it's great thanks to for have having you. me. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Millionaire Next Door podcast. 
click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Signature Estate and Investment Advisors or Royal Alliance Associates Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Sam Miller is part of Robert's value-added support team, FAST, and contributes his expertise to portfolio and investment selection.